This is Client Side from Fox Agency. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Jeff Phillips is the founder of Canvas Marketing, an advisor to businesses using marketing to support growth, scale, or investment readiness. He supports ambitious businesses that are committed to investing time and resource in marketing that works. He's an award-winning marketer, speaker, and coach with a proven experience at C-suite levels across multiple sectors and business sizes from FTSE 100 to high-growth SMEs. He was previously marketing director at Sage and has worked with brands including Baxi, Avery Dennison, Canon and Caspian. Jeff Phillips, welcome to ClientSide. Thank you, Nathan. I'm uh, very pleased to be here. Looking forward to our talk. Yeah, I've been looking forward to speaking to you as well. You, you've got an absolutely fascinating history and background. You, you were pretty good at maths at school and you were told by an advisor to go into accounting and finance, which... You started in Nottingham Trent University for a while. Um, why didn't you follow their advice and, and how did you make your way into a career in marketing? I was badly advised, which is something that I try not to do with um, the clients that I work with. Now, that, this, that takes, <laughs> it, it takes us back a long way that, um, you know, we're going back 20 odd years. But um, I think it's the reality for a lot of, of young people. There's many people that... I work with now and I've supported a lot of apprentice programs. I do a lot of work in talent development within the region I'm in, um, you know, particularly at, um, um, you know, at school and, and A-level um, stages. And a lot of young people don't really know what they want to do. Um, and um, I was just an arrogant young 18-year-old who said I wanted to be rich. Um, I was reasonably <laughs> good at maths, um, particularly pure maths. So I, I still remember careers advisors saying, go study accounting turn yourself into an actuarial scientist, which I still don't really fully understand. Um, and, um, and you know, accelerate a few years forward. I failed my second year on the accounting and finance degree, um, miserably, I should say, um, <laughs> anything to do with accounting. Um, but, um, you know, that, that was probably one of the first pe- really good pieces of advice that I had at the end of that year was that one of the professors took me aside who I had a good relationship with and just said, you know, you, you're, you're really excelling in a lot of the business elements of the course and there was a module related to marketing in that and uh, and their advice was you know you can keep slugging it out on accounting you're going to have to drop back a year in in one way or the other um but um we think you'd be better suited doing a slightly different course which i did and then um actually ended up doing a sandwich degree as well so um it, it ended up taking me five years to get a degree which um at the time i was slightly embarrassed about but now it's the best thing i ever did um and, you know, we went on from there and, and that, that kind of that led to my marketing career. Your first marketing role was a placement with Volkswagen and, and you credit that as the time that you actually fell in love with marketing. What what happened at Volkswagen? I think it was um, it was just seeing it real world. Um, and it's something, again, I encourage anybody who's doing a degree, particularly in a subject where they don't clearly know what profession they're going to go into. Um, you know, so it's all very well if you if you have a if you've got an early passion to want to be a vet or a dentist or a doctor, there is only really one direction you're going to go in. But if you go into business, you don't really know what sector or discipline, etc., you're going to end up in. Um, I, I felt like um, I really enjoyed the marketing side of business, um, but going into a brand as huge as Volkswagen gave me that 
um, real world um, application of the theory um, and, and really helped me to understand that actually what I could do would make a material difference. Um, you know, and, and I think as well, being part of a brand of that kind of size and that kind of heritage, um, it may sound a bit cliche, but I really felt the power and the emotion of working with a big brand. Mm. And, and that's a, that's a huge part of marketing is the, this kind of the emotional side of it rather than just the, you know, the tangible or transactional side of things. Mm. So 1996 with Volkswagen, super early in terms of sort of online marketing and the internet in general, really. What was the state of online marketing at Volkswagen in 1996? <laughs> You've probably done your research. Um, uh, the um, They had a, from what I can recall, they had a, a group website that had been cobbled together um, just to have some presence, dig presence digitally. Um, but um, actually during the time that I was there, the, towards the end of the period I was there, and it ended up being about 15 months from what I remember, um, they actually launched their first ever .co.uk website, which was effectively a, wow. a digital, you know, brochure, um, which was which was a huge leap because you know one of the things I still remember very vividly from that job was literally a huge big brown job bag going around everybody's desks where you'd have um, you know four or five people proofread um, quite extensive you know multi-page brochures for for um, for vehicles down to really detailed technical levels and replicating all of that um digitally online was a was a huge undertaking um and uh interestingly my dissertation ended up being in my final year at the university was what the future of the internet um was for uh for car manufacturers and uh, my prediction at the time was that that um, dealerships would never go away but that there would be a greater influence from a, an online experience in terms of the uh, you know the purchase process for mm. vehicles, and uh, I think that still remains relatively true. But who's to say in the next um, ten or twenty years that that bricks and mortar dealerships won't disappear fully? Mm -hmm. Visionary at the time, I, I, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I, don't, don't think it, I don't think it was difficult to predict. You know, again. <laughs> buying a car is a very emotional thing as well and sure. i think most people would um would agree that you know going and touching feeling and experiencing that um in the in the flesh is um something that a lot of people enjoy um unless you're actually just buying a, a car for a, a transactional reason which you know some people do but that's just a different audience Fast forward a few years and you become the marketing manager at Baxi um Baxi Boilers in 2002 tell us what that experience was like well, that was a um, a radical change from what I'd been used to. It's probably it's probably worthwhile saying I was still relatively na naive in um, how to um, map a career at that stage. Mm. Um, but um, to put it into context, I went from working for I spent you know, time with Volkswagen um, for for the period of placement. I spent you know nearly a couple of years with Canon, um, who were who were obviously Japanese owned, very different culture. Um, but a huge global company. Then I spent um, two wonderful years with Avery Dennison, who were American-owned and, and again a very different culture to um, to Canon. Um, and for um, for reasons of love and um, family, I moved from the south of England, having spent probably five or so years um, living in the south, up to the north of England, and had no concept as to the the culture that was waiting for me um, with a you know, Northwest British owned um, manufacturing business that was Baxi. 
um, and the reality in the role was very different to what I perceived on the outside. And, and that, that was very much, you know, the culture in the business. It was very, very traditional, very mm. set in its, in its, in its, um, in its ways. It was a very heavily traditionally led sales organization as well. Um, and, um, and there were huge challenges in overcoming and, and kind of taking them forward, which at the time, I, you know, I accept at the time I was too, probably too junior to be able to heavily influence that change, but also, you know, the leadership and the executive within the business weren't willing to embrace that change. And, you know, the, the, that, that company itself has been broken up several times and had various different investors go, um, go through it and, and try to make money from it. But the biggest thing I learned from actually from Baxi, other than, you know, I, I always looked and try and encourage anyone I work with to, you know, learn from their experiences, whether or not they feel good at the time or not. Um, but the uh, the one thing that really taught me at Baxi was the power of the channel um, and the power of a, an indirect influence. Um, and I, I tell this story still very regularly, which is that, um, you know, if you have a if you have a boiler um, in your household, generally most people only ever know the brand of their boiler or their heating system when it goes wrong. So as a marketer, yeah. you, you you've, you've got a huge challenge of trying to market a product to an end user, which is ultimately the consumer in a household, um, when actually most of their experience is only ever going to be a, a, when they're in a negative place. So the power of the channel is huge within that marketplace and that your gas installers have a massive impact on what um, brand you select because um, they will know what it, what products are or are not reliable and they'll, they'll have certain things that they will trust. So, um, so it taught me a huge amount about how to market into a channel in, in a very indirect um, sales model through both merchants and resellers as well as the actual installers themselves. So very, very different experience and one that I reflect on now as being brilliant for my career because it, it taught me a lot more about what um, the kind of businesses I wanted to work for and the kind of things I enjoyed doing um, and, and also taught me a lot about that channel marketing side of things as well. That I'm sure became even more relevant when you started your career at Sage and you, and you became marketing director, as we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, I'm sure that channel experience proved to be really, really valuable. So you then moved to Newcastle, where you ended up running a marketing agency, which was owned by your wife's family, as I understand. And this was the first time you actually ran an entire ship, the entire company by yourself. So how did that experience differ to being employed and and now that you are in charge of the entirety of the business well just to give a bit of context i i you uh i didn't run it individually myself but there was a you know there were four four of us that um that were the management team if you like and we had an agency of um, nearly 30 people at the time turning a, a couple of million a year um the the biggest lesson that i learned was don't work with family um <laughs> it's a um it can be a, it can be an emotional roller coaster when you work sure. with family members particularly multiple ones but but you know very seriously it was that there's um i always assimilated to there's there's lots of people who say oh wouldn't it be lovely to run a, a <laughs> bar a bar or a cafe or something like that because you see from the from the outside on the surface how that could be a brilliant lifestyle type of business and it's the same with an agency you know um ultimately a marketing agency 
that it can look glamorous on the marketing side, but you're still having to run a business at the end of the day and all the mm-hmm. things that come with it, you know, the financials, the cash flow, the people management, um, legals, building management, all of those things come with it. Um, sure. so, so ultimately, it's, it's, it's those things that I think when people go into that, you know, agency world, they don't necessarily appreciate that, that that's the case. And, mm-hmm. and you have to make money, you have to be profitable to be able to pay people at the end of the month. And that's a huge responsibility when you when you've got a, a reasonably big workforce. Um, but the biggest thing I learned, you know, from, uh, from running the business at the time, well, there's two big things, really, is that we became very dependent on one big client. And I won't go into that on on this uh, conversation. But, you know, it, it absolutely is true that not to put all eggs in one basket because we, sure. we became dependent on a on a particular client. And that ultimately led us to make a decision to uh, wrap up the business a couple of years after I'd um, been part of it. It actually ran for 20 plus years. So it had hmm. a very good life lifespan and and some of the reasons for um, for changing the uh, the direction of, of all of us that were involved were family reasons, health reasons, and a few other things. Mm. Um, but it, it also, it gave me um, a really deep understanding of, of what I call kind of the drug of, of entrepreneurialism and the mm. rewards that come with it, which you just, you just cannot experience when you work for a large, secure business where yeah. you're, you're surrounded by all of the facilities and the resources and the support and training that you need because you you are very much on your own you know nobody's coming um and uh it's about you making that that success for yourself so taught me a huge amount about that mm. we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later because now you're um self-employed again so we'll talk about how you're um dependent on that drug at the moment <laughs> but uh let's let's talk a little bit about sage you you joined in 2009 as a new customer marketing manager you ended up staying for 10 years holding several leadership roles in marketing and you became the marketing director in 2016 there you led the uk and ireland customer marketing team in acquiring and growing the sage customer base across their cloud portfolio what did you learn when you were at the company the, the biggest thing, to be honest, working with a, an, an organization that size was just the sheer number of opportunities that are available to you. Um, so having not worked in a business at that kind of level of my career before that point, um, there were just so many great um, ways that you could add value to the business. Um, and the big thing I learned was that, you know, ultimately, if you, if you get stuck in if you pardon the phrase um you get stuck in you start to make a difference you start to create um you know a name for yourself in terms of contributing as part of a bigger team towards um a goal ultimately you become a little bit more visible um and you know properly understanding the way that the that a, a big global company like that operates and really having the time to appreciate the way that that works and making that difference creates those opportunities for you. Um, Mm. And, um, you know, I think the biggest thing that I learned was just, was not just developing as a marketeer, but but developing as a leader um, Mm. and learning what it takes to be, to be part of, um, of, of an executive team accountable for, a business that's turning over hundreds of millions of pounds and, and highly profitable and needs to be um, high performing. Um, but it's still interesting, though, you know, people look from the outside into Sage 
um, particularly at the time when I joined, seeing them as a software developer, they were still relatively in the dark ages marketing-wise when I mm. when I joined. And I do not credit myself for um, changing the way that they did marketing, but certainly my um, you know love of digital marketing and challenging the norm. Um, help them to introduce email marketing, um, wean themselves off print, really embrace data science, and really think about how um, how a brand can be influential on a on a customer, which at the time wasn't necessarily the case. So, huge learning curve, um, and um, I, I only ever planned to stay at Sage for maybe a couple of years. If I'm perfectly honest, it was supposed to be a stepping stone. Um, because um, th there were various other things going on in my life at the time that, that just needed a, a role, but um, the people and the opportunities and the brand and um, just the, the sector that we worked in as well was uh, was fascinating. And, and it, you know, the, the bug really bit me. And as a lot of people said at Sage when I was there at the time, that you, you kind of get to the point where green blood runs through you. Um, <laughs> and um, and I certainly felt that it was it was mm -hmm. fabulous. And, it, and I, I, you know, I credit, the organization for um you know developing me into the the marketer that i am today really fascinating you you also say that you learned about how to run a business how small businesses run you also learned about leadership and you know that you had really no fear because you'd seen businesses small businesses fail before so that's sort of le leaning on your previous experience which i guess is it's an experience that many of your colleagues wouldn't have had or maybe didn't have. And so you were able to probably better empathize with the small business owner, which is core to Sage's customer base. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head really is that the, um, when you've, when you've worked in small businesses before and, or you've seen failure and experienced failure before you have a very different outlook on life. Um, and, um, you know, you can relate to the pains and the needs but also the language um, of, um, of small and medium businesses, which ultimately was Sage's um, and audiences. And um, I, I don't think I ever really realized that from day one at Sage, but certainly later on in my career with, with that business, I realized how much of a benefit that had been in terms mm. of being able to, to market to them in a way that, that really related to them and, um, and, and really got under the skin of, of how they wanted to be talked to and, and managed as a, um, as a customer of that business. So that was a, a massive benefit. Now, in, in a company like Sage, knowing where and how to deploy your marketing spend is crucial, obviously. We, you know, with so many touch points from TV, radio, online, print, social uh, events, how do big companies like Sage with thousands of customers know where to best deploy their marketing spend so that they know where their best customers are coming from so that they can redeploy those efforts efficiently well a, a big part of it with a business like that is continuing to do what you know works well um i've always run with a with a kind of mandate of um you know break your marketing budget up where you've got somewhere between 70 and 90 percent of your marketing budget is trained on things that you know work and that you've you've found ways to measure and gain attribution from um, and then put a small percentage say that 10 percent, or even up to maybe 20 30 percent into the things that maybe will be new and different and will help you to leapfrog the the competition and they're often the things that are more difficult to um uh, to measure or to attribute from um so i mean that's the way that i've always kind of i've worked in terms of the the mix but in terms of how to actually 
um, make sure that you um, understand where new customers come from. It, it is a challenge. Um, the reality in it in most organizations is that it, when you're in good times and you're growing and everything's going well, you generally have a good feeling as to where things are coming from. Um, mm -hmm. But actually, the, the pressure to understand attribution is normally much greater um, when you're missing targets, when you're really stretching the business to try and grow rapidly. Um, and that's the point at which you really need to know and understand that you've got the right metrics in place, that you've got the right touch point measures in place, you've got the right technology and understanding of the customer journey so that you can you can pinpoint um, as much as possible where you've had an influence on a customer's decision to do something. Mm. Um, one of the things we, we actually often used to debate was, if we if we turned off marketing for three to six months what would happen and uh we never did it um uh, because, <laughs> i've got to say <clears throat> it's a, it was too big a risk and i think we all knew that but uh yeah. but there, there were some times where with a with a lengthy decision pipeline in a business like that where you can be spending thousands on a on a whole new software solution it can often be a long pipeline so you know, trying to measure the, the, your attribution back to the early stages of that that customer funnel can be challenging. And and again, you know that channel that channel piece that we talked about earlier on um, was was a big learning piece as well because you often have channel influencers like, um, for example, an accountant or business partner or even mm. peers within business who will heavily influence somebody's decision as to sure. what they choose. And as a marketer, you can't necessarily always track that but you can understand that you know even at the top of the funnel with awareness if you've got a share of voice if you've got um you know brand recall and and you you have a presence um in the the places that you do market then you you can piece together the fact that that will have had an influence on on somebody doing something at, at a particular stage what were some of the things that you hypothesized when you thought about what would happen if you turn off marketing for three months well, the the biggest hypothesis was that we knew that because of the pipeline that that um, the the influence of marketing wouldn't um, or the the influence of no marketing wouldn't be felt until probably at least three months, if not, sure. if not beyond. Right. That. Um, because it is very much a you know it is a gradual build up, and particularly in that kind of a B two B market space, it's very much a um, you know that there are subconscious influences regularly seeing the brand, regularly experiencing the brand, whether it's through the product, through customer services, through direct marketing, through peer-to-peer -peer recommendations, through sponsorship, all of those different things, they gradually build up to give a customer confidence and you know, mm -hmm. take, them in, take them into that, that consideration stage, um, you know, beyond, um, you know, just, just initial engagement. So we knew that that, that would... Um, um, be the you know that was the hypothesis for kind of thinking about that kind of a time frame and and as you would expect in a business like that there were huge amounts of direct marketing going out um on a regular basis um, sure. customers that would drive a behavior from um from customers but the reality was that most of that would build up over time and would be triggered by a particular change of circumstance or change of need or um legislative change uh, you know that, that might influence somebody's um, decision to actually take action at a, at a particular time but i would say as well that one of the big things um from a marketing perspective when you talk about the mix one of the things that many people um don't think about in an organization of that size is the influence of marketing on your internal audience huh. um, so the the ability for um uh, internal 
colleagues to really relate to and believe in and gain confidence from external marketing is huge. You know, it has a, a real contagion effect um, into your internal audiences that really gives them the, the belief that they are working for a brand that that's, you know, playing big in the market and is really serious about succeeding and winning new business and, and growing. Um, and that can have a huge effect on uh, sure. your internal audience as much as, as it will on your external audience in terms of driving, um, you know, um, impact. Really, really fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about working with agencies. This is an agency uh, podcast, uh, of course. So of course. Um, <laughs> we need to spend a little bit of time doing that. But so you must have worked with lots of agencies during your time at Sage. And selecting an agency partner is probably one of the most important decisions that you, you can make, really. It's very easy to pick up the phone on the spot and hire a new agency it's far more difficult to find that ideal partner to really reshape the way that you think about your marketing to really propel the business forward what, what's the best way that you found of choosing an ideal agency partner the uh, um i think there are lots of different ways um and I'm forever learning from people in how they um, select agencies. But one thing, I've, I've got a very simple um, model that, that I've always used, which is um, thinking about, uh, well, first of all, I would always say, be very clear what you want to achieve together. You know, it, the, what you, how you go about um, finding an agency um, will be very different depending on whether it's a short-term project or a longer-term partnership um, if you like, and they can be sure. in lots of different guises as well. But I think you know, um, fit is a uh, is hugely important. Um, so you know, is there a, is there a good fit in terms of relationships, people? You know, do you get that? Do you get a good feeling from from the um, from the way that you maybe share culture or the way that you approach things, the way that um, that the agency and the client work? Um, the the other one is function. Um, and I, you'll see there's a theme in here that I'll mention in a minute. But function, you know, uh, do you actually have the um, expertise and the capability to deliver what, what is actually required? And how can you, um, from a client side, how can you assess whether or not somebody has that function um, and that capability to deliver? Um, and, and in a lot of circumstances, well, you have to almost um, make sure that they have actually done it and they really can do it rather than mm -hmm. just say that they can do it. Mm -hmm. um, and then the final one is future. So the, the theme there is, is F, so fit, function and future. Yeah. And I use right. a similar model for, for recruiting people as well, to be honest. Um, but, you know, is, is there a future in the relationship? Um, how could it grow? Um, if the agency, for example, doesn't have some of the skills that you currently um, need, but you find that there's a really great fit and they can meet most of the other functions, do you see that there is a future whereby they can develop themselves into what you need? Can you can you work as a um, you know as a joined up relationship to to find that way to then grow into the future? And I think if you can have that fit function and future um, in any relationship and look for those things, then then there's a good chance that it will succeed longer term. Mm, really fascinating. So, so when you are shortlisting agencies and it's come down to the final two or three, and they're all capable, you know, there's a good fit, there's a good capability or, or their function, and you see a future in working with them. What tends to make the difference when it comes down to the final decision? 
Um, I think, first of all, you need, it needs to be a collective decision. So in most of the times when I've done big agency um, recruitment processes or review processes, you do it as a team. So it, you don't just take the opinion of one or two people. You take the opinion of, of a trusted um, small group of people. Um, and, I, and I have been in those situations where you, you, you're very grateful to have two or maybe even three agencies that, as you say, have that fit function and, and kind of future potential. Um, and you you really are down to splitting hairs, and that's when, um, unfortunately, you get to the point where it, it almost becomes a scoring piece where somebody might literally win out by one or two points, mm. um, and um, and that that sometimes is a is a difficult thing to to have to break. Yeah, hard to take. Yeah, but um, but you know, I think it's it is a mix of having that 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 almost um, slightly emotional, um, if if you like. Um, feeling in terms of what will or won't work and i think there is a there is a big element of trusting your gut um mm. with the business but then coupling that with the objective side of things you know how do they score and and can you if if somebody came to you from one of the agencies and said tell me exactly how you went through the selection process you'd happily walk them through it and you'd happily be able to justify how sure. you made those decisions and i think it's it's incumbent upon clients to have that that diligence in in the way that they approach things, but I also think that it's there's nothing wrong with with you know being able to very with authority say there was just a fit that didn't quite exist um, mm. and a feeling that we had um, you know over and above the uh, the objective things that that were there. So mm. um, so yeah, it's it's a it's always a fascinating process. It's always something that's it's great fun to do mm. on, on both sides, but. Um, but you have to do it with the, with the right level of diligence as well. Let, let's talk a little bit about Caspian. In 2018, you became the marketing director or marketing advisor, sorry, to Caspian. They are a technology company developing AI solutions to automate risk investigations. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds very important. <laughs> um, what problems do you solve for your customers? So Caspian were um, were one of the first clients I worked with when I, I um, set up Canvas Marketing, um, and you know we're, we can talk about that again in in a moment um, if if you want to in terms of what Canvas is. But but um, effectively, I worked in house with Caspian at, um, at starting off a couple of years ago. They are a they're a, they're a technology company that help banks to automate the way that. Um, high risk decisions are made um now by that it's it's related in, in their particular circumstances relates to financial crime mm. so financial crime is rife um literally trillions are laundered through our financial systems every year huh. um, there's a there's a huge percentage of um, money that circulates in our financial systems that that is unidentifiable almost to banking systems as being financial pro um sorry financial crime proceeds um and the the main problem that banks have and financial institutions have is that they can't keep up with the um sophistication of criminals um but also the um the the ability of, of humans um to meet the needs that they have in terms of um, tracking and identifying financial crime is very inconsistent. It's a very finite resource that has huge cost behind it. Mm. Um, so um, Caspian uh, um, use AI and have developed an AI platform which, which effectively embraces deep machine learning that, that can replicate human traits. So the way that the human brain thinks and how it, how it 
investigates and analyzes particular situations and how it then makes a decision ultimately on on what should or shouldn't happen hmm. um, and and um you know technology can do that on a much more accurate consistent and scalable basis than um than humans more often can so typically in a in a human team you might have maybe 10 or 15 percent that are able to do it at, at a really high level a really high expert level but the rest of the team are, are unable to meet that kind of level whereas a, a machine can do it um you know to a to a scale and on that accuracy and consistency mm. um, that, that humans never really can um but the biggest challenge with those in with that industry and i think this is a broader subject for technology businesses generally and for marketers in technology businesses is the more and more that the ai and um you know the machine learning component of ai is developed to be um, a part of the technology that we embrace is what what is the machine doing you know how do you know what it's doing how do you how do you um, have trust in the way that it makes decisions and and uh, actions particular things and it's very different having a bit of ai that turns on a light that you can um, very quickly change or a bit of ai in your tv that might um, give you a slightly um, a better program or whatever. Yeah, or, or recommend something. You know, we all have AI. AI is running the recommendations on Netflix for us every single day. But, you know, it doesn't matter if um, accidentally they, um, you know, they promote a type of programming that um, maybe doesn't fit with you because there's not a huge risk behind that. Sure. Um, but when you're dealing in financial um, markets, there is huge risk behind, particularly when you're dealing with multi-millions and trillions of um you know, dollars of of um, of money flowing through systems and getting the right decision is really important. So, at that kind of a level, where it's that very very higher order decision making, you need something that can actually explain how it does it. And the the, the great thing with Caspian as a marketer um, that was very very clear from day one of working with them was that they had a compelling differentiator, which was that they have built a way for the machine to explain itself fully in a very transparent way mm. uh, but in a way that humans can understand um, mm. as a marketer you know that's gold dust actually having that, mm. that that really really you know it's it's a it was a world first at that kind of level of um, mm. of, of ai and, and as a marketer having that it was a a fantastic thing to be able to to build as as a core part of the story mm. talking about what the machine is actually doing i'm worried about that they'll become skynet and uh, become our overlords and sort of they won't have any <laughs> any need for human beings anymore it's that terminator scenario that i'm worried about with it with ai but uh, i guess we're a few years off off from that now absolutely fascinating so that, so, and that genuinely skynet i don't know how many times that's been that's a word that is used when you're having really oh, it's fascinating God. because you know it's um that is the one of the biggest fears yeah you make a decision as a as an executive in a large global business to deploy um a machine and you then and it then starts doing things that you can't explain that's that's hugely dangerous but nobody will ever allow that to happen which is why it's so important to have um you know that explainability element to to that kind of an ai but yeah Ar well, yeah, Arnie's going to take over the world, so we don't have to worry. About <laughs> he already has governor of California. I mean, he he did yeah. it. Uh, fourth largest <laughs> economy in the world, right? Um, really fascinating. So let's let's talk a little bit about Canvas. Um, as you said, you're you're now the founder of Canvas Marketing. You provide strategic marketing services to businesses with big ambitions, like Caspian, as as we've just 
discussed. Um, you use your director level experience to help businesses to really grow and scale by delivering marketing that really works. How do you achieve that? Uh, well, I think, first of all, I should be very, very transparent and say that Canvas is two employees. Um, and um, it, the I never wanted my name in light. Um, so um, I, I, I wanted the opportunity as my own business to be able to create a brand and to almost go through the process that I would do with, with other clients as well. So that was part of the reason why um, I created a name for the business rather than um, something more traditional like Jeff Phillips Consulting. Jeff Phillips, um, yeah. <laughs> but um, I never really wanted my name in light. And I also wanted to make mm. sure that there was a... Um, a vehicle in the future should I want to um, diversify the business that, that would have an umbrella that wasn't just singularly attached to um, sure. to my name but um, you know the, the I'm, I'm not going to quite answer the uh, the question as it was put but I think the um, what I realized when so I, I always had a, an itch that I wanted to, to scratch in terms of going back into almost self-employment and that was part of the reason you know I, I learned a huge amount in the corporate world with Sage but the you do get to the point where you realize that your ability to make a difference um and the the kind of motivation and driver you start to question those things and mm-hmm. and i really wanted to try um doing um the the things that i'm doing with canvas and working with smaller businesses to try and help them to gain benefit from the the experience that i've got and that's not in an arrogant way in any way whatsoever and actually somebody had to point that out to me for me to, for me to to understand that so when I was looking at doing something myself, the 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 one thing that really I remember resonating that a few people said to me was that there are lots of very, very good marketing director level type of people out there in the market, but generally the majority of them are working for one single business and are right. um, you know, they are committed to that one single business. But there's a lot of businesses out there that are, are at a stage where they really need to grow but they don't have the investment or the confidence to be able to put somebody permanent in place right. on a full-time basis with the kind of, of skills and, uh, and experience that I've got. And sure. indeed, a lot of those businesses need almost a mix of, you know, a bit of junior, a bit of mid-level and a bit of senior level marketing experience. So, um, so a, a number of people encouraged me to, um, to really use that, that level of experience to go and offer that out to businesses that would, would see value in that. And I have to be honest, at the at, at first stage, having lived in a corporate world, world for so long, I was kind of looking in the mirror thinking, really, would people pay me for that? Yeah. Really? <laughs> Do people want that? Really? And then you start having, you start having conversations, um, you know, with, with businesses and really understanding the network and yeah. getting under the skin of their needs. And, and, it, and, you know, it was a reality that actually there is, there is that, um, there is a value that that um, I've been fortunate to have been able to develop over um, a period of time that's still very relevant to businesses that that really want to understand what marketing will or won't work. And when you've been through those cycles several times at a very large level, dealing with large budgets, large targets, sure. um, you know, big ambitious businesses, you you do get a um, a good sense of what will or won't work. Whereas, you know, I, I have a, a very um, strong belief that. There's a huge there's a huge amount of talent in our marketing community in the UK. There's a a, a huge pool of of um, you know early stage um, guys who are in their marketing career, and actually most of them have got all of the great ideas that I could ever come up with, and, and more often than not, more of the great ideas that I could ever come up with. Um, but um, they don't necessarily have the authority and the belief and the 
um, the experience of having gone through knowing what impact a decision to do something will have and therefore they don't have the confidence maybe to take a risk that you do when you when you've um you know had a bit more of that experience and that was that's a lot of the value that I'm, i try to take to businesses is you know they ask me for my opinion and i tell them with a, a relatively decent amount of authority what will or won't work and which direction to go in and and i'm willing um very happily to take the accountability with that but that mm. comes that comes with experience um and and i saw that so i saw that opportunity to be able to offer that a kind of level of um, of service into clients and almost operate client side to a degree, um, and then and then rather than creating a big um, agency with multiple experiences um, or multiple expertise um, internally, um, I work more on a on an associate model whereby I, I go and and find and outsource expertise that that is needed from design or media buying to PR etc. That I then work with a you know a, a select group of of other partners or associates, if you like, that can then help to deliver whatever the business needs that I'm working with. Mm. So, so tell us who some of your ideal clients are. I imagine it would be technology businesses with high growth ambitions, maybe heavily backed VC backed businesses. Um, does it have to be technology? Are you looking at any other industries, or what what tends to be a good fit? Well, if you talk to most um, businesses who've been in, who've had the experience of um, hindsight, um, the majority will say you have to be fairly focused on who your your sweet spot is. Um, so I, I do not deny that working with businesses that have either technology as their product um, or their service that they provide and or businesses that have technology that underpin the product and service that is provided are, are things that I can uh, that really resonate with me and I can add the most value to, particularly in a B two B space. Um, so um, you know those opportunities come naturally, and I'm I'm fortunate to to say that the majority of business that that's come my way has been through referral and recommendation, um, mm-hmm. which is which is always a great position to be in. I think sure. irrespective of of what position you you uh, you take within the kind of agency or outsourced kind of um, supplier model. I guess this is your second time being self-employed. What are some of the lessons that you've uh, that you've not repeated the second time that you made the first time? How how different is this second rodeo? of being self-employed? I've probably covered most of those answers, to be honest, earlier on. Um, you know, you you just, I've got a much, much deeper appreciation of the way that a business runs. Um, I can make decisions with experience and with that luxury of hindsight and knowing what does and doesn't work. Um, and um, I'm, I'm a lot clearer now on what, what I want to do and what I want to be involved in. Um, you know, we, we, we're just touching then on a sweet spot of, technology businesses and b2b businesses but i was i've, I've got a, a big ambition to be involved with businesses that as you say were either ready for investment or going for next stage of investment or are at very early stages of going for their first level of investment that will drive significant growth um, and ultimately um, understand that investing in brand and marketing are critical and, and core to, to their success and if businesses aren't really in that kind of a a mode then they're not going to get value from what from what i do um so it's um the i do work with a, a bit of a, a variety of um of businesses and, and actually i've ended up working with a few professional services businesses in b2b um which uh, naturally a few of them are accountants um which wouldn't surprise you given my background would say say the background right 
but yeah so it's yeah. so it's almost technology and professional services are a, are a really sound sweet spot um but you know that learning um from previous experiences is understanding where you can add the best value and then understanding how to run that business and and how to develop it as well and um I think it's um I don't really look back too much on mistakes I I just always make sure that you know everyone makes mistakes everyone does stuff wrong um the best learning I've ever had is just don't do it again learn from your mistakes but don't repeat them <laughs> right. there you go definitely um Jeff Jeff I could talk to you all day but let's let's get into our, our speed round these are the questions that we ask all of our guests so I'm going to fire some questions at you if you can sh fire some answers back that would be appreciated these are the questions that are a little bit more about you the human being the individual it's almost like the, the man behind the brand um which cmo has the most difficult job in marketing right now <laughs> well um i think given our current client anybody who works in um travel travel <laughs> I, I, how, how could i not say that that's an obvious right. answer, isn't it and it sure. would be unfair to pick out any cmo i mean you know what a challenge they've got in that sector yeah. right now um and to an extent hospitality and uh and a few of those other service related sectors but i think you know the the uncertainty around travel and um uh you know the, the holiday companies and airlines that you know from a cmo it must or for the broader marketing team it must be a huge huge challenge right now mm. are agencies a luxury or a necessity um what do agencies do that that's so unique that their clients really can't do on their own or sort of replicate themselves internally it'd, it'd be crazy to, to think that you you could do something in-house that you're actually paying someone for are they a luxury or a necessity well, i think they're um they're an absolute necessity but you know again a lot of it comes back to the circumstance i think you know agencies can deliver short-term or project-based resource that you just don't have in-house because you can't recruit five people to work on a project to, uh, over and above what you currently have and they they also bring expertise um you know what i always always look for in agencies is how can they apply the expertise that they have from other clients within their portfolio into the client that they're working with at that given time and that's something that that is invaluable for somebody who works um, singularly for one other big business um, and then there's that creativity as well you know you, you're looking for that spark and that ingenuity and something that will really surprise and delight you as a client um, that, that you don't have the inspiration for in-house and, and often that agency client side can then um, inspire and trigger um, ideas coming from both sides of the of the fence but you're looking for that to that inspiration to come initially from that agency so I would say absolutely a, a necessity what excites you most about being self-employed and being the founder of canvas marketing one of the fascinating things of being self-employed is people always say oh, it must be wonderful to be your own boss right. uh, and nobody ever really thinks about the fact that when you work for one big organization you typically have one boss or maybe two or three if you're in a matrix organization sure. I, I work with any at any given time maybe five or six different businesses and those people who run those businesses be it the ceo or the founder and or some of the people in their team they are they are my boss yeah um so um um, five buses. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, but I think the um, you know the benefit of of being the um, you know deciding your own destiny is that you can pick and choose who it is that you work with, 
Um, and the thing that, that really motivates me from a self-employment point of view is that I'm now working with businesses that, that are giving me a very, very different challenge to what I've had previously as a marketer, mm. but also giving a huge motivation. Um, and, you know, I've never suffered from, from imposter syndrome. Um, and that, that may sound arrogant, but um, I, I, I do suffer from um, lack of challenge and, and almost need that, that challenge to really um, motivate me. And when you are faced with needing to find a solution to something and you realize that there isn't a huge global team that you can go to to solve something, sure. it's a massive challenge, you know, right. Um, right. building a really good network around you to, to help with that is uh is critical but that that really you know brings a, a level of um of opportunity and um challenge and you know almost those moments that are that kind of i call those shit moments you know <laughs> the, the days where you wake up feeling just a little bit sick on a morning queasy right yeah, and thinking <laughs> oh my god how yeah. am i going to do that um and and that's that's but amazing you show it well, just just continually, you know, ch challenging yourself to get that. People always say um, I've got a very calm, um, um, you know, external delivery demeanor. Um, yeah, but, but I, I still have those moments underneath yeah. where you, you're thinking, you know, uh, how the how the hell am I going to solve this? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, absolutely. And and if you, I think if you don't have that, it doesn't give you that that. Sure. If you don't have that challenge, it doesn't drive you, and you know, it's. Um, um, finding a solution to those things is is really really satisfying when you can find it. Particularly if it's as you as you said, you know the the person behind the brand. Um, ultimately, I am um, my own brand to an extent. Um, and you realise that there is no hiding. You know, you if if you screw up, um, that has a, a very very material impact on your brand. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, um, I rely um, uh, heavily on referral and i'm very fortunate that that you know many of the people i work with are um you know we have a very very successful working relationship and you therefore get that referral but um but i i, I do live with an element of fear that if you screw up one day how do you make sure that it doesn't impact your brand and that that referral model and that's just a reality that's just being self-aware and and accepting where you are and, and gives you that drive to make sure that you don't screw up what do you do for fun when you're not running vc-backed b2b technology firms <laughs> well the um as i said earlier i mean um i i almost see fun in being in an early stage of a business and mm. you know, it's, i mentioned we mentioned talked about caspian earlier they were one of my earlier clients and um they've recently announced um investment from nasdaq which um mm. which, which is phenomenal um you know for a business of their size and you know i'm very proud to have been part of a very big team that, that mm -hmm. made that happen um, but I, I'm also you know, one of the things that drove me to get into this kind of a um, role is the opportunity to get involved in in businesses that, that you can really have an intrinsic part of from from the start and make a difference. And um, there's another startup business, a startup technology business in the energy sector that that I've actually got got a share in. Um, and I've been doing a, a little bit of um, sweat equity work with for for about a year or so, and uh, and they've actually just received um, some significant first stage investments. So, um, the, you know, the, the that for me is is fun. Um, you know, it was a it was a proper kind of bit of a gamble thing of 
you know, allocating a bit of unpaid time towards something that really felt like it was a, it had huge potential. And, mm. um, you know, again, I don't take the credit for, for achieving that. And it's still early stages of announcing um, um, who that business is at the moment. But but that that's given me a huge amount of reward and, and fun. Um, but beyond that, I, I wouldn't, I don't claim to be anything more exciting than that. I like um, holidaying, eating, mm. drinking mm-hmm. too much. Mm-hmm. Um, going to gigs, all that kind of stuff. Right, just um, like the rest of us. Yeah, like everybody else, don't do anything um, absolutely crazy. Um, but uh, I think just getting that right balance between you know, a bit of family life and a, a bit of fun and socialising, and uh, and often they, they do overlap with uh, with business as well, and that's a, that's a good place to be in. Mm. And my final question, Jeff, what advice would you give to a recent college graduate or millennial who comes to you and says that they want to start their career in B2B marketing and become and follow in the footsteps of Jeff Phillips? <laughs> um, I would say, um, so I'll, I'll answer that in a, in a couple of different ways. A lot of young people I talk to now have, um, haven't, haven't used people like me or within um, the kind of sectors or industries that they want to work in to be able to reflect on where their core capability lies and their core value lies. Um, and I find it fascinating that I'm a, a vice chair at, um, at a, a local sixth form that, that have got a huge amount of talent in the um, in, in their pool of, of students. And um, and I love when I can get the opportunity to sit down with some of those guys and actually ask them some really searching questions about who they are, why they are, where they want to go to, what they want to achieve, and then really try and dig into the the um, the core capability that they've got. So I would say, um, and a lot of them are very kind of blind and, and non-self-aware to those things that, that really they should draw out when they're going to seek those opportunities. Um, so I would I would encourage anybody who's at that kind of really early stage, particularly pre-degree or even you know coming towards finishing the degree, to really sit down and talk to somebody who's had experience in that sector and get mm-hmm. them to really really you know almost tear you apart to an extent, but in a nice way, um, and really get to the crux of who you are. Because if you if you can tap into that experience and knowledge, you can really go and then. Um, set out your stall and your case really confidently to those who who may well employ you and be that differentiator rather than just going in with you know i've got a degree i want to be in marketing but i don't really know why i don't really know where i want to go to i don't really know what i'm going to bring to it so i would say you know a number of of those things i think if you can self-discover on that and use um, mentors and people around you to to give you that direction Um, and then the other bit of advice i give to young people is that it's not all about a title um, the number of people I've worked with who I've coached um, and developed up into, um, you know, progressing their career, they um, some people get really obsessed with a, a particular level or a particular title. And my advice to all of them is don't wait and don't expect to make that jump to that title. Use your current opportunity and your current role to do the things that are expected of you to the best of your ability and do another 10, 20, 30% over and above that on other things that, that will lead you to the that future opportunity. So you almost get to a point where you're actually doing that next level of job before you even get there. Does sure. that make sense? Yes, it does. Um, and really um, 
and you know just don't get hung up on that title thing i still remember loads of people coming to me when i first became i don't know head of marketing or whatever else just kind of like, oh my god it must be amazing to be a head of mark but you just you you feel like you're there and you don't feel any kind of I you know, see. Big, big headedness of right. of reaching that stage it's just it feels right to have got there sure. and if you're suddenly just made a senior position but you don't actually feel ready for it then mm. then ultimately you're not ready for it and you'll probably fail mm. um, so that that's that there may be a few bits of advice that would be useful to people really fascinating and a great place to end jeff thank you so much for doing this it's been a pleasure. I should have said that one of the fun things I enjoy is doing things like this. So um, thank you for the opportunity, Nathan. Thank you very much for being on the show. If you'd like to share any comments on this episode or any episode of Client Sign, then find us online at fox.agency. If you'd like to appear as a guest on the show, please email millie at fox.agency. The people that make the show possible are Millie Bell and Natasha Rosic, our booker slash researcher. David Clare is our head of content. Ben Fox is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Anibarbo. You've been listening to Client Side from Fox Agency. And we're done. <laughs>